You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, you do make all things new in places that we don't choose. Open our hearts to your word as we hear it read, that we might receive your word for us today and also be made new. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, third family. My name is Elizabeth Hayes. Um, I'm a pastoral resident here, and it's really good to be with you this morning. Um, I've said a couple of times in the last couple of days that I think I've met more people in the last week than I have in the last, like, 15 months, which is really great, and I love seeing your faces, so... Um, If you've been with us, then you know that we are in a series on 2 Corinthians called Power in Weakness. We've been talking a lot about how the Corinthian culture deeply valued success and wealth and accomplishment. For them, these were the things that made someone or something impressive or worth listening to or admiring. And Paul calls this a a distorted value system. This letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians is all about how the resurrection completely transforms the way we understand strength and power and success. The gospel is a great reversal that flips upside down uh, what we think to be true. The good news of the cross and the resurrection is that life doesn't come through strength and accomplishment. It comes through death. So now we are like these pots that we see in this graphic. We're broken vessels that carry resurrection life, power and weakness. So if you have a Bible or the worship guide with you, um, then you can follow along as we turn our attention to God's word, which is going to be read by the Murphy family. Reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-15. through 15. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe and very severe trial Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, you're Plenty will supply what they need so that, in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little 
did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. So let's just talk about the elephant in the room here. Nobody likes to talk about money. I think that our ears have kind of a funny tendency to just turn themselves off when we notice that the preacher is about to start talking about money or giving, don't they? So perfect sermon text for Corey to assign to the intern, right? (laughs) But before you tune out because you think you know how this sermon is going to go, I want you to hear this. The beautiful thing about this passage is that it's not really about money. It's about the gospel and about how the pattern of the resurrection affects every part of our lives. So in this week's passage, Paul's confronting the Corinthians about a bit of news that he had heard. He's heard that they've stopped taking up a collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Um, So this section of 2 Corinthians chapters eight and nine forms kind of like Paul's fundraising letter. And some commentators see this section, this fundraising letter, as a departure, kind of a tangent from the rest of the letter. But I see this as a really important continuation of Paul's concern that the Corinthians experience true gospel transformation in every aspect of their life. So I do think that Paul wants to encourage them to make good on their promise to support the Jerusalem Christians. Uh, But I think that his primary concern is that their hearts and their lives and their values would be turned upside down by the power of the resurrection. Because grace doesn't just change our souls, it changes our wallets too. And I think Paul is convinced that the good news of the gospel is the most powerful fundraising tool. Because at its core, the way we think about money is a question of the heart, and only the gospel can change our hearts. So we're gonna start with the punchline of this passage, the life-altering news and the great reversal of Jesus' generous grace towards us. Now we're gonna take a closer look at the example Paul gives us of the Macedonians' sacrificial generosity. And finally, we're going to talk about what gospel-drenched, grace-driven generosity might look like for us. So let's start with Jesus' generosity towards us. Um, In verse nine, Paul gives us one of the most beautiful and succinct one-line expressions of the gospel that we have in all of scripture. And it's the heart of his appeal to the Corinthians to make good on their pledge. So let's take a look at it. Um, The first thing that we see is that he says that Jesus was rich, though Jesus was rich. This might sound a little funny if you know anything about uh, the life of Jesus. When exactly was Jesus rich? Paul's making a really subtle comment here on an extremely complex doctrine. He's talking about the riches that Jesus had before he took on human nature in addition to his divine nature. So he's reminding us that Jesus was not just some once in a generation inspirational or exemplary figure, but instead he is the eternally existing second member of the Trinity who existed as the son of God before he took on his human nature, before he became incarnate as a human. This is the one who John said spoke life into creation. 
Everything that has ever existed belongs to Jesus. The wealth of beauty and pleasure and comfort that he has experienced for eternity uh, makes Bill Gates look like a bum on the street. But in spite of that unimaginable wealth, Paul says that for your sakes, for our sakes, he became poor. We know that Jesus lived a really humble life while he was here on earth. He was born into a poor family in another man's barn. Uh, During his ministry, he described himself as having nowhere to lay his head. He made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a borrowed young donkey, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. So Jesus took on financial poverty. He chose to live his life fully dependent on the generosity and hospitality of others. But we also, but he also allowed himself to be treated poorly. As the pre-existing son of God, he deserved more honor and acclaim and respect than any other human that has ever existed. But he allowed himself to be despised, mocked, rejected, ridiculed, beaten, He gave up eternal fellowship with the Father to become a man of sorrows. And I think that when we recognize the riches of his life in heaven, it makes the simplicity and the suffering that Jesus chose to take on here on earth even more astonishing. So that's the first part. Jesus was rich, but he became poor. But why did he do this? Paul says that he did it because we were poor. We were destitute in our sin, banished from the garden, banished from life, banished from hope. We were poor. But in and through Jesus, we've become rich. Not only did Jesus take on our poverty, but he gave us his riches. Righteousness and acceptance, forgiveness and freedom, membership in the family of God. We're like beggars on the street who've been made princes and princesses in the royal family. Friends, we are rich. And that's the gospel. The rich Christ became poor so that we poor sinners might become rich. So you see, Paul's fundraising tactic isn't about making demands. He's not coercing the Corinthians by playing on their guilt or their sense of duty Paul's saying, don't give because I'm telling you to do so. Don't even give just to fulfill your obligation or, to, or because it's the right thing to do. Give because you've looked at Jesus, received his grace, his riches, and you've been changed. Paul shows the Corinthians that this question, this ethical question about giving, just like every ethical question, is actually a gospel question. The gospel is what produces generosity and selfless sacrifice. And Paul shows the Corinthians this by showing them Jesus. So how exactly does Paul imagine that the gospel would transform the Corinthians' giving? What might a community transformed by the gospel, how might that community give? Well, Paul says to look to the Macedonians. Now, it probably would have been difficult and a bit awkward for the Corinthians to hear that they should give more like the Macedonians. Because Corinth was a large, stable trade city, uh, and they prided themselves on their strength, their wealth, their success. 
And the Macedonians, on the other hand, they were from northern Greece. They included some groups that you might have heard of, like the Philippians, the Thessalonians, and the Bereans. Um, And they were just everyday, small-town nobodies. And in terms of their finances, we'll see in a little bit that they were actually suffering extreme poverty. So maybe the Corinthians might think that Paul might tell them to give more like the Romans, but the Macedonians, that's sort of like a Wall Street stockbroker being told to model their financial life after an Appalachian coal miner. It would have been offensive. But the Macedonians show us what I think is so often true. So often it's the people who are going through hardships who help us understand what true generosity is. And here Paul tells the Corinthians, who were so prideful about their excellence, that the Macedonians of all people were the ones excelling in gospel generosity. So what can the Macedonians show us about gospel generosity? Well, first, Paul says that gospel generosity is joyful. Verse two is really interesting. Um, Paul says that the Macedonians' extreme poverty combined with their joy resulted in rich generosity. Now, that's a strange equation, isn't it? And I think that the idea of uh, joyful giving is a strange concept for us. For us, being asked for money makes us feel awkward. It triggers our shame and perhaps our embarrassment, and it might even make us feel resentful of the people who are asking. But the Macedonians didn't feel this kind of resentfulness or awkwardness about being asked for money. Their giving wasn't just to satiate their shame or a sense of duty. They saw giving as a delight and an expression of joy because they were aware of Jesus's generosity towards them. Despite their need, they were so happy to give like Jesus had given to them. So Paul says that gospel generosity is joyful. Next he says gospel generosity is sacrificial. Again, in verse two, it says that the the Macedonians were in the midst of a very severe trial and that they were facing extreme poverty. They didn't have anything to spare, but they gave. So their giving was not out of their abundance. They didn't give what was left over after they'd satisfied their needs or their wants. They didn't give what they could spare after they had met their budget for the month. In spite of their extreme poverty and their financial instability, they gave way more than they could afford to give. Their lives were already limited by their circumstances, by their poverty, but they chose to limit themselves even more by their giving. You know, in America, um, we're kind of known for spending beyond our means, for racking up a lot of credit card debt. But the Macedonians were giving beyond their, their means. And I think that this is really remarkable. So finally, Paul shows us that gospel generosity is enthusiastic. The Macedonians begged Paul to participate, he tells us. They wanted to participate in this collection. They didn't view it as a burden or an obligation. They viewed it as a privilege. I think oftentimes as adults, our gift giving feels like a burden. And I think that kids, especially young kids, can really show us something here because 
young kids are really enthusiastic gift givers. And if you have children or grandchildren or any children in your life, then you have probably been the recipient of an enthusiastically given gift. Like maybe a pre-chewed Cheerio. They already started the chewing just for you. Or a dandelion or some kind of handmade craft. Um, Kids love giving gifts. And I think that one of the reasons is because they're used to receiving. Everything that they have, they have received. And they know the joy of receiving. And so they're enthusiastic about giving. And I think that that's something like what we see in the Macedonians here. This joyful, enthusiastic, and sacrificial generosity so beautifully reflects the generosity of Jesus, doesn't it? And I think that that's because the gospel generosity of the Macedonians flowed out of their belonging to Jesus. Paul says in verse five that they first gave themselves to God and then they gave themselves to us. So their giving was not because they owed it to Paul, because he made a really good ask, or for any other reason besides the fact that they belonged to God. I think that this is an incredible picture of discipleship. Don't you? So I wanna share a story of gospel generosity that I recently heard from a friend of mine. Um, My friend Mauro is Costa Rican. He's um, a pastor in an area outside of San Jose. And Mauro is a true picture of joyful, enthusiastic, and sacrificial generosity that we see in the Macedonians. He himself is from a poor neighborhood, but for the last 15 years, he's been planting a church in a neighboring, less stable area of town called Concepcion. And um, for all that time, he's dreamed of buying uh, this plot of land that's in Concepcion so that he could build a church and a community center there. Um, And in spite of the fact that Mauro often struggles to put food on his own table, and the fact that the land cost more than he could ever imagine uh, seeing. When the opportunity came up, he was able to make a deal with the owner. And so for the last five years, he and his church have been making monthly payments um, of $1,800 on this land. And $1,800 is a lot of money. Um, As the payment deadline approaches every single month, they do not know where the money is going to come from, and they wonder. But every single month so far for these five years, God has provided. So I got to visit with Mauro a few weeks ago and see the land that he'd been dreaming of for so long. This is me with my husband. Mauro is next to my husband, and then our other friend, Max. And that's the land behind him. Um, And we were talking about the land that he's purchased, or that he's purchasing, and how faithful God had been to provide those monthly payments, and he told me this story. He said that a couple of years ago, he and um, some other pastors from his denomination in Costa Rica went on a mission trip to Cuba to minister to and encourage some pastors there. Um, And Mauro had heard uh, before his trip that the average Cuban pastor makes $20 a month. So he took with him five $20 bills Um, so that he could give out $20 to five different pastors as the Spirit led. Um, But when he left for the trip, uh, they were still $1,000 short on their monthly payment, and it was going to be due right before they got back, or right after he got back, sorry. Um, 
So he took his $100 anyway, uh, not knowing how he would make the payment on the land when he returned. And when he got to Cuba, uh, a group of pastors there let him know that they had actually taken up a collection in their church to present to him for his church back in Concepcion. So they presented it to him, and you might guess that the amount was $1,000. So he thought, Mauro thought that he was going to bless these less fortunate pastors with his sacrificial gift. But they blew him away with their joyful and enthusiastic and even more sacrificial gift. Here's the thing about Mauro and about these Cuban pastors and about the Macedonians. Their hardship and uncertainty has taught them that whatever they have, it's already a gift. And they celebrate that gift. They want others to experience that kind of grace. Their gratitude for God's provision, for his grace in their suffering, is overflowing as generosity in their life. And I don't know about you guys, but I am desperate to learn from people like that. And now, I haven't been around third for too long, but in the short time that I have been here, I've uh, heard lots of beautiful stories of generosity. I've heard that third supports the work of many, many ministries and missionaries here in Richmond and around the world. Um, I've heard lots of stories of people's generosity in their pledges to the Renew campaign. And I heard that last year when the Christian Arabic church suffered an outbreak of COVID, that members of third begged to be able to support them financially and that over $80,000 was given in just a few short weeks, which is really remarkable. Um, And I know that there are a lot of other stories that no one will ever know. And since I'm new to third, um, I wanna tell you about another generous congregation that I know. I grew up in a church in Birmingham, Alabama that's made up of lots of really generous people. Many members of the church there even pride themselves on their generosity, and rightly so. Um, The church itself is also very generous. It has a multi-million dollar missions and outreach budget, supports ministries and missions in town all over the world. Um, And God honors this generosity and produces fruit with it. I was actually the recipient of this generosity for four years. I was a missionary in Nicaragua, and I was so grateful for the financial gifts of so many members of that church. Here's the challenging thing. As I was um, reading this passage this week, I was wondering if Paul might consider that church, my home church, uh, more like the Corinthians or more like the Macedonians. And if I'm honest, I can see that my family and others have often given out of our surplus than rather, rather than out of our need. This has been extremely convicting to me, and I wonder if you might uh, find it familiar. Far too often, my own giving is a begrudging and resentful attempt to assuage my guilt or my shame. Sometimes my checks come with strings attached. The thing is, and I've, I've hardly ever rarely limited my lifestyle in order to be able to give more. No matter how generous we are, no matter what the number is behind the dollar sign, if giving does not come out of a heart transformed by the gospel, then it serves our own values of power and self-sufficiency 
rather than serving God. But maybe there are some of you who are listening who have never made a habit of giving to the church or to anywhere else. Maybe you thought that you would start doing that when you were older, when you were more financially stable. Maybe you thought that there are plenty of wealthier people around here to make up the difference while you get ready. Um, But now you look up and you find yourself in the middle of your life and you've built a lifestyle that requires a certain income. And it's hard to imagine how giving might fit into that. Here's the thing, there is immense freedom and joy to be found when we are able to recognize that what we have is not our own. Like my friend Mauro and those Cuban pastors and the Macedonians, that everything that we have is a gift. I love the reminder of our offering liturgy every week, and I oftentimes think that it's the most important thing that I say every week, that what, everything that we have comes from God, and what we offer to him is already his. I think that giving allows us to limit ourselves, which allows us to recognize what is already true, that what we have comes from God, that he is the one who provides for us. So I want to end by um, I want to end with a quote by um, the late Catholic priest uh, and writer Henry Nouwen. A lot of you may have heard of him. A lot of people don't know that in the middle of his career, he actually discerned a call to be a missionary priest in Latin America. And so he spent six months in Peru and Bolivia discerning that call. And he published his journal from that time in a book called Gracias. And so this is a quote from his journal from his time in Bolivia and Peru. It says, in many of the families I visited, nothing was certain, nothing predictable, nothing totally safe. Maybe there would be food tomorrow. Maybe there would be work tomorrow. Maybe there would be peace tomorrow. Maybe, maybe not. But whatever is given, money, food, work, A handshake, a smile, a good word, or an embrace is a reason to rejoice and say, gracias. What I claim is my right, my friends in Bolivia and Peru received as a gift. What's obvious to me was a joyful surprise to them. What I take for granted, they celebrate in thanksgiving. What for me goes by unnoticed became for them a new occasion to say thanks. And slowly I learned I learned what I must have forgotten somewhere in my busy, well-planned, and very useful life. I learned that everything that is, is freely given by the God of love. All is grace. Paul didn't reduce his ask to a black and white formula that would allow the Corinthians to check a box and consider themselves successful at giving. Instead, he turns the tables and he shows them Jesus. Paul's real concern for the Corinthians, and friends, I think God's concern for us is that we be transformed by the gospel, by the grace given to us, so that genuine selflessness spills out. Paul says that when the gospel really changes us, when we know what Mauro and those Cuban pastors and the Macedonians know, that all is grace, then we will beg like the Macedonians did, to participate in sacrificial giving because of the riches we have in Jesus. So will you pray with me? Jesus, you became poor to make us rich. You filled us 
with the riches of your grace. And now we ask you, Father, to transform our hearts. As you fill us with your grace, make us vessels of your grace towards others by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.